Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. The airlines are back online, and Pete Buttigieg is taking heat. And honestly, I don't mind that Pete Buttigieg takes heat. I just don't know what of this is supposed to be his fault. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. If you missed my conversation about China, these war games, and this new committee, bipartisan in the House of Representatives, my conversation with Steve Yates is coming up super quick. But it was this morning... The FAA announces this outage of, of their system, this system that communicates with pilots about, hey, here's what to uh, look for in, in your flight. Here's some of the problems that we're seeing in, in, your, in what, your schedule, in, in your, not to your destination, to your route, your, the route that you're using, the, the NOTAM system, the Notice to Air Missions, which used to be Notice to Airmen. Yeah, that's right. That's right, the FAA went woke. So this caused all the domestic departures to be delayed. It was a three-hour ground stop. It ended at 9 a.m. and soon thereafter, and then the flight started getting back, and who knows how long it's going to take for everything to get back to normal. The White House Press Secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre, said there was no evidence of a cyber attack. Okay, well, that's, that's good to know, but I don't necessarily believe you. Pete Buttigieg saying he's being kept abreast of the technical issues. He's, of course, the Transportation Secretary. I don't know if you can argue that this is his fault, but you can now argue supply chain issues aplenty, airlines like Southwest totally failing during the holidays, and now this? Maybe some of this really is on him. We all knew from the beginning that Pete Buttigieg was not up to the task. There was no reason for him to be transportation secretary other than checking a box. He doesn't know anything about transportation. He didn't do the job as mayor. He is in over his head. He can't do it. The only thing he knows how to do is take government planes with his husband to fly wherever it is he wants to fly. So the flights are back on track. Hope they stay that way. The story with China, that's up next. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. It has been a very interesting 24, 36 hours regarding the conversation of China. Because just the other day, I was discussing this organization that said, hey, we war-gamed out a fight with China over Taiwan, and while the U.S. would win, uh, it would really damage the U.S. military, never mind what it would do to the Chinese military. And you wonder, well, to what level war games are actually real. What is the factors? What are the factors involved in there? They said this is a war game of 2026. What happens if there's an invasion in 2024? And well, how much of this is reality versus propaganda? And then you find out in the Kevin McCarthy-led House of Representatives, you've got a bipartisan move to create a committee about China, the Committee on Strategic Competition between the U.S. and the Chinese Communist Party. 146 Democrats joining in with all the Republicans in order to note, to state, China might be competition, but really China is a threat, and we should address this. Movement is afoot. Do we finally have a policy in the United States that really focuses 
on what the issue of China is all about. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. Stephen Yates joins us right now. He serves as a senior fellow and chair of the China Policy Initiative at the America First Policy Institute, AmericaFirstPolicy.com. Before we get into this war game conversation, which is why I'd reached out, uh, we see this vote happening in the House of Representatives, bipartisan, your take on what the committee is supposed to do and whether or not you think it's a good idea. Well, thank you, Tony. I think the select committee focusing on the threats posed by the Chinese Communist Party is a very good idea. It's one that is overdue. Uh, and I think it's a good move to start off the new year, the new Congress. Congressman uh, Gallagher of Wisconsin has been asked to chair the select committee. He has been very consistently a critic of the Communist Party of China and China's role during the COVID experience on national security issues. But I think the naming of this committee to look at the Chinese Communist Party is a helpful reminder that 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 party is the enemy of the Chinese people. It's the enemy of the American way of life. Uh, It's hostile to the free world. And the challenges it presents are not just a foreign policy or defense policy issue. And that's why you get back to a select committee being important. It doesn't legislate, but it is the only vehicle that can be used in Congress to cross the multiple jurisdictions that the Chinese Communist Party takes advantage of to undermine America in America uh, and then undermine American interests in other parts of the world. So I see it as a strong positive move in the right direction. Proof will be in the pudding in what it does, but I think it's the right vehicle for our time. Well, a lot of these conversations involve two, I I think, distinct conversations. Number one, the idea of the military threat of China. The other one being the more underbelly threat of China. You've heard Governor Ron DeSantis ask the question, why are the Chinese buying up so much farmland in the United States? It's something that I've been addressing on my show for over a year. I make the argument that just on a national security level, that members of the Chinese Communist Party, Chinese nationals, not U.S. citizens who happen to be Chinese, Chinese nationals, members of the Communist Party, should not be allowed to own property in the United States because it is a national security issue. Is that kind of conversation part of what this uh, group, uh, what this committee is going to engage? Or is it going to engage the quote-unquote higher level, more uh, in-your-face threats regarding, for example, Huawei and the future of 5G technology or just the straight military growth of the Chinese? Well, I think it's an all of the above. If I understand the concept correctly, uh, the important part is you're exactly right when it comes to the domestic challenges, whether it's Governor DeSantis raising the question of whether anyone affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party in any way should own any property in Florida or any other state for that matter. Uh, it's a very important conversation to have. It's also extremely helpful for that movement in the states to gather momentum in multiple states to pressure Congress, not just to convene the conversation, but to pass pass legislation. Uh, I think the fact that the Democrats chose to participate in this voting in a big way, uh, I think it'd be a hard conversation for the 60 plus Democrats that voted against the committee to explain it to their people at home, but God bless them for trying. Uh, but I think that the, the state movement is incredibly important. States like Indiana uh, and other uh, ag states uh, definitely need to be a part of this mix. Uh, there are a few simple pr- uh, principles that really need to be at play 
and we need to make them a firm foundation from the grassroots up. One is reciprocity. No entity from China should be able to do in the United States what American individuals and companies are not allowed to do in China. The other principle is we should engage in no behavior that strengthens the ability of the Chinese Communist Party to threaten us or our allies. Uh, and then I think the third principle is it's a privilege for any non-American to engage in activity in the United States, uh, especially when it comes to the ownership of property, involvement in our markets, our education systems, etc. And the Chinese Communist Party presents a unique threat, very different from all others around the world. And we should err on the side of keeping those institutions in America safe rather than the pie in the sky globalist idea of, well, if we just open everything up, that will normalize Chinese communist behavior. I think the last 30 years have proven that thesis incorrect. Talking to Stephen Yates, he is the senior fellow and chair of the China Policy Initiative at the America First Policy Institute. Uh, Just to maybe put a little bit of a bow on this conversation, that there was so much talk, and certainly I I can remember being part of that conversation, at least believing this idea that the more you open up China to Western civilization, the better it will be for China, the more westernized that they will become. China proved us wrong that they saw what happens when you open up and they said the answer is more communism. They took a look at what happened with with uh, Mikhail Gorbachev and they said more communism. They took a look at things that happened uh, uh, in, in other nations and they said more communism, more strength, more dictatorial uh, point uh, of view. There doesn't seem to be, certainly under Xi Jinping, any opportunity to see a more democratized China. Is that true just of Xi? Or is there now baked into the calculus with this Politburo? The idea that communism is the only way and those who look for another way might find themselves with a bigger uphill battle than we all realize. Well, it's definitely the case that from the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre forward, informed by the Chinese Communist Party's Uh, studies, in air quotes, about what happened with perestroika, the form and opening policies within the Soviet Union that ended up with the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Uh, From from those points in 1989 through 1991 forward, the Communist Party of China has been adamant that they wanted to be open to absorb all of the advantages possible from engagement with the West and the wider world while keeping up as many controls as possible to minimize the influence or change within China itself. Uh, I think it would be a mistake to see it as ideological. This really is a classical authoritarian control move. This is really about these individuals in that party, which yes, does have some ideology, but it's really about their dictatorial control. They're keeping the spoils. Uh, and so it was a mistake, and I was a part of the mistake 30 years ago in, in suggesting that there would be normalizing behavior if more Chinese people got uh, engaged in free enterprise, in entrepreneurship. The internet would be a potentially liberating technology that would go beyond the control of dictators 
these were all the naive ambitions of a lot of people in the 1990s. The Communist Party was dead set against allowing that to happen. And it turns out the whole world has learned that these liberating technologies can also become dangerous tools of control, even in our own systems, but especially when you have a regime with no ethics, no value of human dignity, uh, and no real accountability, they can take it to the nines and you end up with uh, profound control. So there is not an effective movement toward democracy within today's China under the Communist Party of China. That's the Communist Party. Under Xi Jinping, it's just much more blatant and aggressive. And under Xi Jinping, it's been exported more, where they take the wolf warrior fight to Australia, Canada, the United States, Japan, other places that try to keep governments on defense. Uh, and so that, I think, is the added wrinkle. But you're correct that there's been this arc of a sad learning experience for policymakers and advocates on policy over the last 20 to 30 years, where that thesis that was a warm bath of conventional thinking has proven wrong. Let's move it over to the war game. Let's move it over to what the people there at the Center for Strategic and International Studies did running a series of war games 24 times to answer two, as is described, as reported fundamental questions. What Would the invasion succeed and at what cost? Meaning if China were to invade Taiwan and the U.S. were to support Taiwan in uh, repelling the invasion, would the invasion work? And what would be the cost? And what they came to is an answer of no, it would not work. And the cost would be enormous for the United States, for Japan, for Taiwan, and for China. The question before us is, do we pay attention to war games like this? Is this something that's taken as serious? There's definitely an audience in Washington that takes war gaming seriously. And there's a huge cottage industry built around it in the United States and other capitals around the world. Uh, for those who don't know what this actually is, it's a, an effort where policy experts and government practitioners uh, essentially get an acting gig where they take up the roles of an American president, a Japanese prime minister, a Chinese dictator, uh, military elements, and they engage in scenarios where these actors impose their understood rationality into dynamic situations where uh, an invasion is unfolding or a, a cyber or other kind of attack is unfolding, and they try to draw lessons. So in general, uh, I don't put much stock in any war game ever. It's make-believe, and it never helps to impose our rationality onto what might be the rationality of a Chinese dictator and their military leaders. We just can't know what they will really do and how, and we have to operate with that reality. Uh, the upside, though, is I do think that the broad conclusions that this particular war game uh, is highlighting uh, should have been known prior to the war game to the extent it helps drive the conversation that, yes, conflict would be very costly. That's why rational people don't seek it. Uh, but also that the Chinese Communist Party would probably lose. I think that's a realistic outcome. Uh, you have to ask yourself, though, who cares uh, and who's willing to w w bear those 
risks and costs because the Communist Party of China has been willing to engage in genocide, has been willing to snuff out the golden egg of Hong Kong's free market uh, rule of law prosperity, has uh, been willing to threaten Taiwan, which is an enormous contributor to China's economic growth and international trade. And it's been willing to threaten the United States, without which there would be no modern developed China today. Uh, so, uh, you know, you just get back to the question of, yes, there's some key takeaways that I think are helpful to the conversation. But in reality, this is make-believe, and at, we're at the mercy of what are we really willing to risk and do, and what is China's leadership under Xi Jinping willing to risk and do? And we uh, are operating in a degree of ignorance that is uncomfortable and will always be thus. I thought it interesting that this discussed an invasion in 2026, which I thought was strange because why wouldn't that invasion be happening, you know, 2024 or 2023? Why, why would we be waiting three years for such a thing when it, it could all take place right now? That's an absolutely fair point, and that's part of the make-believe of these exercises. I mean, we can't know what happens between now and 2026 anyway. Uh, Xi Jinping could die. Uh, the current outbreak of COVID in China could be more de- debilitating for the Communist Party's rule than it seems right, it is right now. We could have another pandemic of another kind, courtesy of the Communist Party. Uh, and who knows how we'll react uh, to such a thing. And we have this little thing known as a, a national and presidential election in 2024 that will change American leadership in one way or another. So there's just any number of things that could change between now and then. That's why it's a bit of fantasy. However, to the extent that these exercises force people to look at, well, if it looks like there is a risk of this kind of conflict, wouldn't we be sensible to provide Taiwan as much material to defend itself before we have to get dragged into it? Wouldn't it be, make more sense to be big advocates for Japan having a strong independent capability so that it's prepared to weather this kind of a storm with or without American help, wouldn't that be a sensible way to prepare? And shouldn't we be amplifying that if you move in this direction, China, under Xi Jinping, you will pay a dear price and you will fail and we will make it so? Uh, That wouldn't be all bad to be the messaging, Mm -hmm. but the bottom line is Americans don't want this fight, and there's good reason not to want this fight, and that's why I err on the side of empowering those for deployed to have greater capabilities themselves. Stephen Yates, he is the senior fellow and chair of the China Policy Initiative at the America First Policy Institute, AmericaFirstPolicy.com. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. We've got more. I'm Tony Katz. We've got flights back going again. We've got committees working on the problem of China. People are getting more mortgages because the mortgage rates have come down. You would think that everything is fine. But of course, as we know, that's not the case because you continue to have companies that are shedding employees. You continue to have the intellectual property theft from places like China, never mind the threats against places like Taiwan. You continue to have people like Joy Reid who want to tell black men who are conservative that they're racists and Uncle Toms. Oh, 
How many times have we seen it? That interview of Joy Reid and Byron Donalds, represented Byron Donalds, it's something else because people are like jockeying in the back and the forth. And, oh, man, she owned you, man. Dude, she interrupted him. I only saw one clip. So many times, that's not proving a point. You let someone speak and then you commentate and then you ask questions and disagree. I'm not saying that there aren't disagreements that can get heated from time to time, but if that's the only thing you're going to do, that's not owning. That's not anything other than uh, the most absolute of weakness. It only proves that Gore Vidal lives. Remind me to get into that one day. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. So good to be with you. Oh, no, 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 the madness remains. Dear Lord, just the conversation on gas stoves alone. That one just plain old nuts. But there I was. There I was yesterday, engaged in a cigar, minding my own business, when the people over at Fox 59 shared a story. That Food Network put out a list. It's the list of the best 50 barbecue joints in all of America. They go state by state, they do. And in our beloved Indiana, number one on the list, right there in Westfield, Big Hoffa's, the number one barbecue in the state of Indiana, Adam Hoffman joins us right now, the owner of Big Hoffa's. Like myself, came from California, but like myself, left all the crazy in uh, California. Uh, it's been, what, has it been a decade for you at Big Hoffa's, Adam? It's actually been about 20 years now. Oh, well, excuse me. I missed a whole decade uh, right there. You have uh, the weirdest barbecue place in the history uh, of mankind uh, is Big Hoffa's because it's pirate themed and nobody thinks of um, barbecue as pirates or connected with pirates. Why is this? Well, we wanted to do a little something different, approach the uh, the theme of our restaurant a little differently and do, and just do something fun. Uh, that never got old, really. Uh, the original barbecue came from pirates and them dry-smoking meat on lattices when they landed on uh, islands. They they only were limited to certain kinds of uh, food on the ocean, so uh, they would learn this drying process of smoking meats. So we went with the uh, theme, and uh, and 20 years later, we're still having fun with it. So it's it's fun. It's different. It's uh, it's exciting for kids to come in too. So we enjoy it. It's over there on East Main Street, 800 East Main Street in Westfield. Big Hoffa's, H-O-F-F-A-S, BigHoffa's.com. Um, we, we have spoken. We're friends, full, full disclosure. I, I, I've eaten there. Um, uh, I have interviewed you for the barbecue book uh, that, that I'm doing and more uh, interviews uh, to come as we continue to, to grow it out. What makes good barbecue? Because it, it it's a weird thing that it's not something that you see uh, a tremendous amount of a restaurant franchising of. It's a very thought of as a very regional concept, but I don't know if there's something specific regional to Indiana. In your view, what makes good barbecue and what is the thing people do wrong when they're trying to engage it? I think people overthink it. I think that uh, anything that takes time, 
is going to taste good. My grandma used to make hot chocolate. took her 20 minutes to make. I don't know what she was doing, but it was the best hot chocolate I ever had in my life. So just like barbecue, you need to take your time, let it cook slow and low, and uh, and just enjoy the time with it. Put some love into that food, into that cooking. You can't rush it. I think too many people try to rush it and uh, try to over-season it. And uh, a very important part of barbecue is choosing the right kind of meat and the right kind of trimming. And uh, that's, that's what sort of separates us from a lot of other places is we take our time uh, choosing what kind of meats we put, we put out to our customers. So that's a big but deal for you us. You also do some, some weird stuff. I mean, you've got the tra- traditional sides. You've got the mac and cheese. You've got uh, the coleslaw. You do a lot of sandwiches with sandwiches with fries right on the sandwich, which is a very Pittsburgh kind of thing uh, to do. But you do rice bowls, I, barbecue with rice bowls, and it's a jasmine rice. The whole thing's weird, man. <laughs> well, we wanted to do something a little different about – 12, 13 years ago, we took a bold move and started creating some really off-the-wall menu items uh, because, uh, you know, anybody can go to a barbecue joint and get ribs and brisket, but uh, can they get the amendment? Can they get the hoffinator? These are crazy concoctions we've created over the years that, uh, uh, especially with the rice, the rice soaks up the barbecue sauce or the teriyaki sauce or spicy mayo. We use sesame oil in some of our products, but uh, it's just such a great combination of, of menu items. And at the bottom of those last four or five bites of the rice, you get all the juices, all the flavors from all the things that we use, the veggies and the meats in there. So it just gives a different spin for customers that are used to uh, just the normal barbecue stuff that's out there. Talking to Adam Hoffman, the owner of Big Hoffa's Barbecue, Big Hoffa's, H-O-F-F-A-S, BigHoffa's.com Food Network, calling Big Hoffa's there on 800 East Main Street in Westfield, the number one barbecue spot in the state of Indiana. You talk about this weirdo menu uh, that you have. The amendment, as you described it, or as you called it, a bed of jasmine rice topped with beef brisket, teriyaki glaze, homemade jardinieres, cilantro, onions, and spicy mayo. It doesn't make any sense at all. Those things, those things, uh, j- uh, jasmine rice, not barbecue, teriyaki, not barbecue, jardinieres, not barbecue. It, what, when, when you put this together and you share this with an audience, right, the, the people coming to the restaurant, do they look at you like you're weird? All the time, all the time. But every single time a customer orders that or I encourage them to order it, they they do not regret it. It has so many different flavors. I think a great menu item on any restaurant menu is it com- comprises of a lot of things. For instance, it needs to be sweet and salty and, and crunchy and it has to have all the, all the senses in there. And you can make a million different things in a barbecue restaurant or any restaurant, but does it make the customer come back? Do they crave it? Anybody can make a sandwich. Anybody could do uh, a, a funny off-the-wall menu item, but does it make the customer come back and make them crave it? And that's what we've, we've done well. But the, the sweet and salty and peppery taste from the brisket and the, the, the hot, fluffy jasmine rice and the crunch from the jardinera and the spice from the mayo really creates such an amazing flavor profile for that uh, menu item. And that's why I think that was, that's what that's become one of our best sellers on the menu. And then there's the Hoffinator, which is seasoned fries topped with mac and cheese, baked beans, pulled pork, barbecue sauce, and ranch dressing. And oddly enough, low calorie. <laughs> 
Yes, definitely low calorie. Well, if you take all every single menu item and separate it, it's not horrible for you. But all those put together just make a. Uh, it's it's actually our number one seller, the Hoffinator. It's it's our. It's one of my uh, ex-employees, Eric Nickloy, one of my buddies. He um, he created that menu item uh, just by having fun one night after work, and it stuck. So it's become our our number one menu item. Big Hoffa's Barbecue, BigHoffa's.com, 800 East Main Street in Westfield. Uh, look, if you know me and you do, Adam, you know that I uh, have discussed when I discuss barbecue, I discuss Hank and I discuss the smoked corned beef from now until the end of time. I've said it to you and I am clear. Uh, but your brisket, brilliant, dude. Absolutely positively brilliant. Try all the things over there at Big Hoffa's, bighoffas.com in Westfield. Number one, according to Food Network, uh, congratulations, Adam. Uh, Good on you. you, Good to the whole gang. Adam Hoffman joining us right there. More coming up. And now I need brisket. I'm Tony Katz. The Golden Globes were last night, and no one cares. No one cares. No one cared? I don't know if it's singular or if it's plural, it's past tense or it's present tense. Whatever it is, what an unbelievable hot mess. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Find everything, TonyKatz.Locals.com, TonyKatz.Locals.com. I did not know, I did not know that the Golden Globes didn't happen last year. The Golden Globes didn't happen last year because they didn't have a black member of the Hollywood Foreign Press, because that's who the Golden Globes is, and so therefore they canceled the whole damn event. I I had I had no clue, and that is telling you something. Look how much you didn't miss it. Look how little it mattered. Now, I argue often that these cultural things matter greatly. Oh, yes, they certainly do. Culture matters. Then, of course, there is the move to show just how cultured we are. And the problem with that move is that it's an insult to people who may have actually earned something because then people go about questioning whether or not it should have been earned. Let me give you an example here. An example of what I'm talking about. Best performance by an actress in a supporting role in any motion picture? Angela Bassett for Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Am I supposed to now ask... If an actress the caliber of Angela Bassett wins an award because she's black, because I don't want to play in that game. I don't want this. What what, what I want is to say congratulations, Angela Bassett. That's exactly what I'm going to do. Exactly what I'm going to do. But they now have everybody questioning why anybody wins anything. And I think that's pretty damn ugly. Pretty damn ugly indeed. But you, I mean, never mind the extent that you've heard of any of these movies or any of these 
actors, you, you, you didn't care. And that's the problem that the Golden Globes has. Because while these cultural things matter, if the Golden Globes can't get you to care, that's on them. They're the ones failing to do their job. I discussed, I started with the fact that the Golden Globes, I didn't know this, they were discussing it, didn't happen last year, and you didn't miss it. You didn't care. It didn't mean anything to you. You're like, whatevs. Your life went on as normal. That's a bigger problem for them. Uh, than it is uh, for for you and me. But don't worry, I'm, sh- I'm sure that if I were to go through it, there was a tremendous amount of lecturing of America and how terrible and how bigoted uh, we are. Maybe that's another reason why people don't watch. By the way, Kevin Costner won for Yellowstone. Abbott Elementary won for Best Television Series. Abbott Elementary wins for everything. I have no idea, is, is her name? It's not Quentin Brunson. The creator there, Quinta Brunson, Q-U-I-N-T-A, that's it. I don't know where she came from, but she has continued to hit this show right out of the park. I've never seen it, so I'll let other people tell me whether or not it's good. Then it's possible you weren't watching the Golden Globes because you were watching the State of the State. Governor Eric Holcomb providing the State of the State, letting you know that everything in the state of Indiana is absolutely perfect and peachy keen and and just fine and ain't nothing's wrong and it's just it's just terrific on terrific on terrific don't you know it's irrefutable that we must do more to prepare and retain our homegrown talent too the most important determinant of a child's success in adulthood is their education Furthermore, the quality of their education relies overwhelmingly on two groups of people, parents and teachers. Since 2017, I'm so proud of the work we've accomplished together to support unprecedented investments in K through 12, which is translated into school districts answering the call to raise teacher pay. The answer is always to them, more money for teachers. I'm not opposed to this. I only want to know what the result is going to be. Governor Holcomb also talked about uh, public health. I hate to remind us, but I will. We rank 45th for smoking, 46th for obesity, 43rd for access to mental health providers, and 41st for childhood immunizations among all states, our competition. But what really struck me is that our life expectancy in Indiana has declined in recent years, specifically among those who are front and center to our future, working-aged adults between 25 and 64 years old. That's a pattern we have to reverse. And I will politely push and prod and poke everyone I can to adopt the commission's recommendations, including a significant increase in our state's public health appropriation, $120 million in the first year and $227 million in the second year. Nearly all of these dollars will be deployed locally 
in your districts where our fellow Hoosiers need them, tailored to the unique circumstances of each community partner. Now, I like the idea that locally you decide what happens with the money. It's a lot better than having a a top-down approach. Uh, Again, I'm only asking the question. It's not even I have an opposition to the spending. Certainly, we can discuss the numbers. Is our issue solely and exclusively a money issue? If we talk about um, obesity rates and, and mortality rates and things like this, is it all about money? Have we shown that if money was placed X, we would get Y result, and Y result would result in Z future? I don't think that's an irrational question. So a lot to break down from the state of the state, uh, Governor Holcomb's uh, address, and the reactions to it. We're going to have so much more of it throughout the weeks and, and this whole session here. Well, session four months. That's better. Find everything, TonyCats.Locals.com. TonyCats.Locals.com. Tomorrow, everyone. Take care.